Welcome to Wisdom of the Elders, the podcast. This month, we go back to November 9th, 2013 at the Northeast Regional Folk Alliance Conference that was held at the Hudson Valley Resort in Kerhonkson, New York. The host was this series creator, Sonny Oaks, along with the late Scott Alaric. The panel consisted of Betsy Siggins, Jim Rooney, and Bob Jones. Bob passed away in August of 2023. Let's go back in time now and welcome Sonny Oaks, who introduces the panel. The whole concept of this panel is to have interviews of elders in groups. I mean, I'm sure every one of these people has been interviewed many, many, many times as an individual. I'm not old enough. You're not in, in the group. You're just a, an MC like me. Yes, I'm just a pop. <laughs> I'm talking about, talking about our special people in the middle. And uh, the idea is to interview them as a group because they know each yes, other. They They've kind of grown up together over the years in the folk world. And they have a lot to say to each other about each other. And that gives it a whole new meaning. This is the fourth time we've done this here at NERFA. It's been done. At, I did it at FAI in February, and SURFA actually did one this May, thank heavens. I'm trying to get all of the regionals to do this with their elders so that we have a, an amazing archive to be kept by Folk and Alliance International, and the idea is to make it accessible through the internet, so if you're doing research or if you want to learn about some of the elders, this is a good place to do it, a good way to do it, hopefully free. We, it's, not, it's not a money-making project. It's a fun-making project. Shoot. <laughs> no, nobody ever promised Jenny money, Betsy. <laughs> it's the story of my life. <laughs> well, that's why you're in folk music. <laughs> All right, so just very briefly, I'll introduce what we have here, who we have here, not what we have here. Well, what we have here is great people. Okay, down the other end is Scott Alaric, who's a writer and a had been a columnist for the Boston Globe, is that correct? Mm -hmm. And he's a folk slinger <laughs> as well. And uh, he is from the Boston area and knows the folks there very well. Next to him is Bob Jones, who his name usually conjures up the image of the Newport Folk Festival. And uh, he's been around, well, all of these people, but we have about 150 years at least of uh, ex folk experience sitting here on this stage. And then we have Betsy Siggins, who has done a wonderful job. Well, she was very much involved with Club 47, and she has been very much responsible for an incredible documentary, which we showed here yesterday about the uh, folk music, about Club 47 in uh, Boston. And the documentary is called For the Love of the Music. And to my left, he's the closest to my age and similarity. This is so interesting. I heard his name. Betsy recommended him. Betsy gave a great recommendation. You, and when she recommended him, I said, oh, bluegrass player. And that's all, honest to God, that's all I knew about him. And then I went on the internet and I almost had a cow. <laughs> I said, oh, man, this guy has has done it all. He's a real renaissance man. That's and the other Jim music. Rooney. Well, his, his alias. <laughs> and his name is Jim Rooney. And we're going to start with, what we, the format is three 15-minute interviews, individual, and then we're going to go into a general 
conversation. Tacky and then if any of you have the questions. Come out. If any of you have questions in the audience, we'll be glad to entertain them later on. Okay, let's start with Scott with your first one. Well, it all began for me. Oh, no, I'm. <laughs> <laughs> Something came up the Charles River. I can't remember. That's right. That's right. I woke up washed ashore. My ship wrecked at sea. Uh, I'm going to start uh, with, with Betsy Siggins, who uh, it, it's, it's kind of a, a, um, a meme to, to that she's often called and has been since the 1960s the, the den mother of the Cambridge folk scene, which, of course, it sells her short. I really think the more I've studied and and reported on the Cambridge folk scene. Um, I don't think there was a more important or impactful uh, activist in fomenting and preserving the Cambridge folk scene, and particularly in guiding it toward becoming what made it so special. And I think if you look at the folk world as it exists today, there's more of a through line to what was happening in Cambridge than there was in the, the more celebrated Greenwich Village scene in that it wasn't just a star-making machine in an industry town, industry scene. It was a real community that valued social music, that valued the old traditional masters as well as the young stars, and that thought of folk music as a place where all of that should be nurtured together. And I think Betsy's belief in this music is, is it was, was a fire that kept that energy going through the 60s. So, Betsy, I wonder if you could describe, you, you came to Boston, at Boston University, where you met Joan Baez and Debbie Green, and the three of you sort of discovered folk music together, I think. Um, tell us a little about what, what was folk music like before the 60s revival? What, was, what kind of music was it? What was the scene like? Well, I didn't get to Boston University until 1958, where, I, where Joan was in my class, Jim Queskin was in my class, as was Debbie Green, who, if any of you remember, she married Eric Anderson and was a lovely singer in her own right. Um, but we thought we were going to go to theater school. We thought we might be actresses. We thought we might graduate. Um, <laughs> None of those things happened. Um, the folk scene was just percolating over in Cambridge, and I guess on some college campuses, but when I moved to Boston, I took a job in a coffee shop. I was a waitress in a donut shop, um, and it was a tiny little place just outside Kenmore Square called the Cafe Yana, and there were, I think, 12 seats, and the, the performer had to sit in the window ledge um, where the radiator was, so sets were short. <laughs> um, but with Joan just blossoming, I mean, every, every day you could see her change and become more and more and more um, proficient, profound, um, and deeply dedicated to causes that most of us at 17, 18, and 19 hadn't really been paying much attention to. I mean, I think we all went, you know, we had parents in World War II, but the idea of the conflagration of Vietnam, 
civil rights, blues musicians coming up from the South, the whole, the whole idea of segregation that seems so far away from us came in its own way through music to us. And we were very impressionable and I think we felt it, we had something to say and people were writing protest music and standing up for what was right. And Joan was, a, was a, a, just an incredible example of what you can do through music, with music, and, and with bravery. Um, and so I was really impressed with that. And then Club 47, I mean, Bob was there, Jim was there. Um, yeah, I wanted to, how did you, how did you discover Club 47? Because Club 47 was not a folk club when you first found it. How did you, how did you find it? And tell us how it became the folk club. Well, it was a jazz club because there was an old law on the Massachusetts books that said you couldn't serve food if you weren't a nonprofit. Some silly. But they closed the place down. It had been at jazz. But Joan had gone in there on her own and said, could I play here? And Joyce, who was running the place at the time, said, what's folk music? We're a jazz club. We're, we're like in Paris with that romantic idea of cigarettes and espresso. Um, and Joni said, well, how about giving me like a chance? And honestly, on Joyce's face was this look. Okay. Um, and it didn't take long for that to, to just puddle out into the community. And we found a home there. I mean, I was not a musician. Um, but I, I loved the community, and it grew th th through Joan. It became more apparent that there was a lot more to learn about this kind of music that we, in the early days, didn't know much about. Well, what was your role at Club 47 early on? A little bit of everything. Jonesy was um, running all the hoot and nannies on Sunday nights. Right, Jonesy? Yes. And he used to sing the longest ballads I had ever, ever heard. When I remembered the words. Yeah, that, that was another issue. And Rooney, my pal Rooney, was playing bluegrass and playing just wonderful stuff with Bill Keith. And he was one of the managers of the Club 47. Um, and if any of you have heard of the book, Baby, Let Me Follow You Down, Jim co-wrote that with Eric von Schmidt, and it's a loving portrait of the ups and the downs of trying to run a folk club and the, the power of it that, you know, people say to me now, well, did you know what was happening when it was happening? I, I ask any of you, did you know what it was happening when it was happening? Mm -hmm. um, I, and I think we don't. We grow through it, and we either it's a phase or it becomes a passion or it becomes entertainment for you. But we were in a time where it was really wide open and, and the music from the South was being discovered and I just fell in love with the, the black blues players who, who didn't have a pot to pee in. And they, he, these guys brought those singers to Newport Folk Festivals in the early, late 50s? 60s, 60s, 60s. 60s. Um, and that was the, and then they used Club 47 as mm -hmm. a conduit for a place for these guys yeah, I, to play again. That's, I'm wondering how Club 47. It sounds like what 
a lot of it is is what the community the community sort of happened to the club rather than the other way around but it became a place where Joan Baez would sing one night Sun House or Doc Boggs would be the the next night and then Jim and Bill Keith would be there and then Bob would be there and it it, it, it reflected so many different kinds of folk music and it seemed like it had a real mission to mix the new stuff with the older stuff. How did that, did that just evolve because you came, you all came down with your idea of what should be there? I, I think it was really organic. I think mm -hmm. without the Newport Festival we would have never had access to those, the variety of musicians, both black and white, that came from the South or Detroit or Chicago. Um, somebody, somebody turned us on to Paul Butterfield, and you know that was that. Um, but there were there are a million stories, and I wish I had more than my time. And I know I'm going to run out in just a second, so I'm not going to even breathe. Um, the club was just like a magnet, and and everybody involved were, were Scotty dogs. <laughs> they just got stuck, and um, it was hard later on to make enough money um, to, to please everybody. Um, but it was, it was my home and I'm, I'm who I am because of those years there. And it's given me great, great joy and great friends. And before, and I, I do want to move on a little bit to, uh, and then we'll get back to all of that when the three of you are, are uh, joining when we get past the formal interviews, but I want to talk a little bit about your returning to Pasim. Club 47 moved in 1965 from 47 Mount Auburn Street to 47 Palmer Street, and uh, then closed in 1968 with exquisite symbolic perfection. It became McCarthy for President Headquarters. <laughs> And then uh, became a bookstore that had, once again had no intention of being a folk club. But when it was taken over by Bob and Rand Donlan, they again the community came to them, what they used to call the ghosts in the wall, and they became I, I think the maybe an even more important club for folk music simply because there wasn't any place else. And they really kept that fragile flame lit in Boston through the 70s and 80s, but were going out of business in the early 90s when Betsy, who had become very involved in the homeless movement in New York City and the, and the AIDS support uh, shelter movements, and had become very experienced in the nonprofit world, returned and helped guide Pasim into becoming Club Pasim, combining both legacies and becoming a nonprofit. Tell us a little about about what, how the club struck you in comparison to Club 47 and, and, and how it became the nonprofit that it is, that you made it. Well, I lived in Washington, D.C. and worked at the Smithsonian in the summer, so I got another whole kind of education working for them and going down south with musicians. I moved to New York um, and there was one folk radio station in the 80s and 90s, and that was WFUV in, in Fordham University, and it was a great, great, great show. Um, but I didn't have my hands in the music world as much those 25 years, although I have to say that before everybody got a cause and everybody had a foundation if they had been successful, um, you could call up Bob Dylan, or you could call up Judy Collins, 
and you could say, I need to raise money, and importantly, awareness about how many people are living on the street and how many people have no services for addictions and abuse. Um, <clears throat> Taj Mahal would come, uh, James Taylor. They didn't have that, that huge business model that, that I think they have now. Um, and they would show up and they would say, where do you want me? I don't need money, I need a hotel room. And in a way, it was a lot simpler. As the years went on, it got, it got a lot harder and everybody is pulled in thousands of pieces to give money to an awful lot of stuff out there. Um, but, but they stayed true to sort of the idea of the club, the idea of community, and the idea that we're all in it together. And so when I came back to Cambridge, <coughs> excuse me, it was 25 years later, and I had missed out on 25 years of singer-songwriters and younger artists coming up. Um, the club was about to close. It owed an enormous amount of back rent to Harvard University's real estate company. And that went on and on and on. And so they told me and a small board of directors that you have to become a nonprofit. You cannot, you're not making any money. So why not be a real nonprofit? <laughs> <laughs> that was good for Harvard. <laughs> so my education and information from, from running nonprofits in New York City gave me sort of a, an in into writing grants and creating programs and looking at what the community wanted, looking at what the community was missing and asking them, you know, what would you like? in small committees. And it turned out that by creating a children's program, a music school, and an archive program, we had enough to satisfy the state with the recommendations you have to fulfill to be a nonprofit. Um, so I came in there sort of ignorant again, and we all, we all worked for nothing the first year. Well, that was not unusual. Uh, um, but, but with those programs, we began to get another sense of how you can work in community, which Club 47 didn't have that opportunity. <clears throat> Excuse me. We were a straight music venue. And then more festivals came up, and, and they sort of like things sort of spread out like in the water about, you know, who's doing what and why are they doing it, and how important music was is and what it could do for the, the, the country in general. Um, it's, you know, people say, what, what do you feel is di most different about the Passim years, which were the 90s and the 2000s, and the Club 47 years, and it's really that we were charged with a mission in the 60s, and there was no doubting it. You didn't have to go look for it. I mean, we were losing guys in the war in Vietnam in just unspeakable ways. And civil rights, I mean, Joan was there, and she marched in Selma with Martin Luther King. And then we'd come back to Cambridge, and, you know, we would see, wow, there's somebody who's done it. Mm -hmm. um, I think now there's, there's too, too much going on all the time, and too many people, and too many mechanical things um, that make people kind of like, oh, I would like to get back to a little bit more simplicity, but how do you, how do you sell yourself as an artist? Mm -hmm. So that's sort of what the next step is for, for this community is 
what's the new model really going to look like, and is it going to be healthy? Is it going to be, is it going to make folk musicians happy? And I and I think I think one of the the main things you brought to the to the new club Passim that belonged to the club 47 too is you would think it was impossible to do, but but you've helped guide it there twice, and that is for a club to be able to simultaneously exist as an important star-making professional showcase club with press, that kind of prestige and cachet to it, and a very welcoming community center for anybody who, who wants to explore this music or just wants to find kindred souls. And, and that, that strikes me as, as the most important kind of human thing that connects those two legacies. Mm -hmm. Um, tell us now one more uh, for this for this portion of the formal interview. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing now because it's a, to me a real through line continuation of that in folk New England. Well, when Club Forty Seven closed in 1968, it was sort of time in many ways. Uh, people were going in other directions and moving to other parts of the country. The party was over, we couldn't afford it anymore. But what I got out of it was like a, a month of cleaning the, the basement. <laughs> Not that kind of clean. <laughs> Taking things out and I took what I wanted to salvage to my house where it sat and sat and sat, went to Europe with me, came back from Europe with me and it just like the light went off a about 10 years ago. What are we doing with this and why is it important and should it be taken care of? The answer to that was all yes. So I trotted out with some friends and we started pulling these archives together. Um, and we created the uh, New England Folk Music Archives, which you all have a uh, little folder from, which kind of tells you who's backing us and who, what, what kind of work we're doing. And it's become, you know, I'm not going to look like the, the Library of Congress, but what I, what I want to look like is a place where um, Jim Rooney can put his archives and know that they will be cared for and lovingly used as a teaching tool, as a remembrance tool. Because um, these things aren't going to come around again. I mean, the 60s were very, very, very fragile years and I discovered tapes, the reel-to-reel -reel tapes. And we got a Grammy Foundation grant which was enough money to transfer all those tapes into CDs and DVDs, all of which will be online. And there's some real treasures, some real treasures. And I'm, I wish I'd saved more, but people are starting to give us more stuff and we're always looking for funding to keep the archives. They all have to be scanned and preserved and kept in certain temperatures to, to take care of them. And so it's terrifically important because our, our history, what Sonny's trying to do here with the wisdom of the elders and what Betsy's trying to do, kind of slips between the cracks. You know, the, the pop historians tend to focus more on pop music and on rock music and what led to rock music. And folklorists tend to ignore the history of the folk revival because they're still interested in how it lived in, in working class culture. So this history that she's preserving is something that, that, that nobody else is doing. And just for the reason all of you are here, it's our history. And it's just like it's our music, it's kind of up to us to preserve it. So thank you for doing that. That's it. You're welcome. <laughs>
All right, we're going to go switch to Jim Rooney. And as I said earlier, all I knew was a bluegrass musician. And then I went on the internet and I found, pa I have pages and pages of stuff here. And the two things that jumped out at me the most was number one, that you went to Amherst I did. College. And you were in Boston for quite a while and you were very much involved with Club 47. And the other thing that really caught my interest was the fact that you are a producer. This I knew nothing about, and that you spent many years in Nashville, and I think you're still doing that, because the other day in the mail, I got a CD, Robin and Linda Williams. <laughs> I looked at it, and I saw, produced by Jim Rooney. I said, oh my heavens, <laughs> he's still at it. I thought he was it. dead. <laughs> <laughs> he's still at it. So I guess I would want to divide this into two sections. Let's start with uh, Boston. How did you end up there? What were, why did you go to college? What were you planning to do before all of this hit you? Well, I'm from Dedham, Massachusetts, which is everybody knows is a hotbed of folk music and, and every kind of music. It's certainly got the blues. And um, <laughs> so uh, there was nothing happening in Dedham. It was dead in Dedham. And so uh, I, and I came from a, you know, lived in a suburban street near the school and everything. And my uh, folks, we very interested, very big emphasis on getting an education, and I went to a Latin school. They have these schools around Boston called Latin schools, and this was the Roxbury Latin School in West Roxbury, where Jones grew up, and um, uh, that was, you know, classical education, Latin and Greek and science and reading, writing, and arithmetic, very rare these days, and so... Um, <laughs> Uh, that was very difficult education, but there I was. I was grinding away, and um, uh, I didn't have any musical background uh, to speak of. And uh, so a buddy of mine in school said, oh, you should need to listen to this show on the radio. It's the funniest thing you've ever heard. And it was um, a hillbilly music show, and the every evening at quarter of eight, this band came on the radio, WCOP, and they were from West Virginia. The Lilly Brothers, Everton B. Lilly, Don Stover, a banjo player, and Tex Logan, who was a fiddle player, and they called themselves the Confederate Mountaineers. And this was something I had never heard in my life. And it something about it just grabbed me. Uh, the, Curly, my friend Dick Curly, the, you know, song, they had a song called Mother's Not Dead, She's Only a Sleeping. He thought that was the funniest thing he'd ever heard. And I got beyond the humor of it all, and something, I'm convinced it was my Irish genes kind of coming to life and recognizing something in this music that was familiar. And uh, so I started listening to them every day. And then after them uh, was a great disc jockey named... Nelson Bragg, who was from Maine, he called himself the Merry Mayor of Milo, Maine, and he had a down east kind of thing that he worked really hard. And at the time, <laughs> this is 1951, uh, Hank Williams was alive, Lefty Frizzell, Hank Snow, all those artists were at the height of their careers, and I just got totally drawn into this music, and Hank Williams in particular. I was, you know, starting to become a teenager, and I wanted to be as sad as he was, and uh, uh, you know, and as funny as he was. He was just amazing. So, at any rate, that's how I got started, and uh, um, eventually, my uncle 
Jim noticed me strumming a tennis racket while I was listening to the radio, and he decided I need some help, so he bought me a, a real ukulele, a Royce Mech ukulele made out of mahogany, and uh, showed me a few chords. And I subscribed to a magazine pr published in Connecticut, of all places, called Country Song Roundup, and I think they might still be in business. And they published the lyrics to all the hits every month. So I started getting those, and I had the ability, and this is sort of a gift, I think, I knew when to change chords. I didn't have to be told. I could hear these tunes, and then read the words, and then I could strum away on my little ukulele. And my, I had three girl cousins who lived down the road in the summertime, and um, so I was singing uh, Backstreet Affair, your cheating heart, all that stuff. And I didn't know anything about backstreets or affairs or <laughs> cheating or anything like that. But my, my cousins seemed to think it was pretty cute. So that got me going. And uh, so that's how I started. Okay, and then how did you end up, let's, let's jump to Club 47. How did you end up Well, there? in college, you, I did go to Amherst College. And while I was there, I met this kid. Um, who was learning how to play the banjo, the five-string banjo. He knew how to play tenor banjo in a Dixieland band, but he was starting out. He had a Pete Seeger model banjo, long neck banjo, and he was just getting, he had the Pete Seeger instruction book, and the last page of it was uh, about Earl Scruggs. And he had just gotten to that page, and he was starting to get into that style of playing. And I said, well, I know some of those songs. I'd never really... Uh, I was into the hillbilly star stuff, and bluegrass didn't even have a name when I started out. And so um, uh, I said, I know some of those songs. So we started singing together, and my mother had given me a copy of Carl Sandburg's American Song Bag for my 16th birthday. Uh, I eventually did get on that hillbilly show, by the way. I was on the Hayloft Jamboree when I was about 16, and my friends all called me Tex, and I had to get powder blue pants, and I was a star for about four months. And, and uh, then the show went away, they changed the radio format, and I was left to my own devices, and I found a bookstore in Boston that sold folk music. It, and in the back, they had Folkways Records, so I started buying those. I bought Lead Belly, Big Bill Brunzi, and Mike Seeger started recording stuff. He had American banjo Scruggs style. So I showed Bill Keith that record, and I said, you know, there's this banjo player in Boston. And the, the Lilly Brothers and Don Stover stayed in Boston. There was a, a bar there called the Hillbilly Ranch, and they worked there for 18 years. And uh, so I said, there's this banjo player in Boston. You've got to hear him. So I took Bill Keith to hear Don. And so Bill and I started playing together. And uh, that's how we got going. And I came to Harvard to do graduate work. I majored in classics, because it was easy enough. And um, <laughs> so I was doing a degree at Harvard. And Bill was still at Amherst. And, but we played together occasionally. And there was a. a guy in Boston, Manny Greenhill, who was starting to manage people. And he took Joan Baez on. And he, he uh, came up to Amherst my senior year. And um, he, he, Manny was an old communist. And, and he needed a communist front to put on a concert <laughs> at UMass, uh, a campus organization, we call them. And, uh, <laughs> and so uh, he wanted to put Odetta on up there. But he needed a, 
front. So we formed the Pioneer Valley Folk Song Society, and I don't know if Josh Dunson is here tonight, but yep. he, he is one of the original members of the Pioneer Valley Folk Song Society, as are Taj Mahal and Buffy St. Marie, who were going to UMass at the time. So that's how we met Manny, and Manny started helping us, and uh, one of the very first concerts we ever did, a real concert, was at Dartmouth opening for Joan Baez in January of 1961. And it was just me and Bill, and we had some folk songs that we did, we some bluegrass and some banjo pieces and stuff like that. And then we thought we were pretty good, and people seemed to like us, and then when Joan came out, it was absolute pandemonium. And that was kind of a big, oh my, this is actually something happening here, isn't it, Mr. Jones? And so uh, uh, that was a real uh, eye-opener. And, uh, and then we started, uh, I, I was in Cambridge, Bill got out of college, and he started coming, staying with us in Cambridge, and the Club 47 was going, and Joan had gone out to California with her family, but Eric von Schmidt was around, and Tom Rush was going to Harvard. He was starting out. Jim Queskin and Muldar and Jones and everybody started coalescing. And uh, the club was closed by the police for a few months on a trumped up charge. And they got over that and it was reopened. And Betsy, Manny Greenhill and some others formed a board of directors, got it. It was a nonprofit. And um, they got it up and running. But it was pretty thin at first. It was, I think, in uh, January of 62, I think it was. And uh, it was pretty thin at first, but it, we had, we'd have Tom Rush one night, Jackie Washington another night, Charles River Valley Boys, Bill and me, Jones, my Taj now wife, Carol Langstaff, different people every night. And it started to build. And by the springtime, people were starting to line up. And uh, this fellow, Paul Rothschild, was a hi-fi enthusiast. He started coming to the club. He worked in, a, I think, a music store, a record store in Boston. And he said, why don't we start recording this? And he recorded the Charles River Valley Boys. And the club was going had started a little label. And then things kind of ground to, and then he recorded myself and Bill Keith with Joe Val, Herb, Joe's first recording, Herb Applin and Fritz Richmond, and, and before it was over, Paul recorded all of the people in that scene and went to Prestige Records in New York, and then he went to Electra Records, and then he produced The Doors, and Sayonara. Wow. <laughs> okay, and, and the other thing that I, I don't understand how you made the jump from that to Nashville. Now, in Nashville, you became somehow a producer. I mean, you say that you really didn't know much about music. You started out very loosely there. And then all of a sudden, here you are in Nashville, and you're producing Nancy Griffith, you're producing John Prine and uh, Iris DeMent. How did that come about? That seems like such an amazing jump. How did you become a producer? First? Well, it took a long time, and um, I guess I like to boss people around. And, uh, 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 and um, I, um, I, I had little experience. You know, we, uh, Bill Keith and we made our first record in 1962. And we all stood in a circle around some microphones, and Paul Rothschild had a big Ampex machine in another room, a really good engineer named Steve Fassett, who'd only recorded 
chamber music before that. But bluegrass is kind of a chamber music music. And, uh, and then a few years later, I made a rec another record with Bill and Eric Weisberg and Richard Green in New York City as the Blue Velvet Band. And then we, so I, and then uh, Albert Grossman, I was looking for work and I, uh, he offered me a job uh, uh, to manage a studio he was building in Woodstock, the Bearsville Sound Studio. So I was around there, and while I was there, I wound up helping Eric von Schmidt make a couple of albums, and I got my name on the record as a producer. And all a producer is, in my uh, way of thinking, is a facilitator, and, I'm tr and I've been around music, and I like the collaboration of it. I like being in groups, and... I love being in a room full of musicians with a singer and trying to figure out what to do with a song. And I, I usually let the musicians and the singer figure it out and then I take credit. <laughs> <laughs> People say that you were the one responsible for creating a new sound. Well, people can say what they want, but it, it, it's, um, it, it was, you know, we don't know what we're doing when we're doing these things. We didn't know, you know, we were, oh, we're all making history today. Uh, but as it turned out, uh, I guess we were inventing Americana. I mean, uh, so it's now Americana, and that's fine. I'm glad, you know, it's a way to help sell the music. But um, it, it was all, it's all been very organic all my life. It's all just been, you meet Bill Keith, you meet Betsy, uh, Betsy and Bob I met, uh, I met Betsy at the Golden Vanity, and she nice. wore very short dresses. Uh, so did a, Maria Muldaur. Well, that was later. You set the trend, sweetheart. <laughs> and and, and, uh, and she had a bit of a mouth on her. I know this is hard for you to believe. But, and she got my attention, and then uh, she ran off with some banjo player. And um, so... They, I, my very first day in Harvard, I kept my nose clean for a year down in Boston at graduate school. I wasn't going out to the folk clubs or doing anything. I was really working hard. And then I moved to Cambridge. And the very first day, I was down on Harvard Square. I run into her, or as we say in Ireland, herself, and, <laughs> and Bob Siggins. And they were standing on the corner chatting. And up comes Eric von Schmidt. And who I'd seen play, but I'd never met. And he says, oh, I'm showing some Chaplin films up at my apartments just around the corner, come up tonight. Well, that was the beginning of the end of my whole <laughs> academic career. And uh, so uh, it was all downhill from there. And, um, but as I say, it's all been organic. When I was in Woodstock, there was another wonderful community there, some of whom were in Cambridge, uh, Jeff and Maria Maldar and Bill Keith. And then there was a the whole band, and. Van Marson, all kind, Paul Butterfield, a wonderful bunch of people. And then, I'm, I, but I always felt that Nashville was the place for my, the kind of music I could do. And I wound up there, and that is also just a fantastic musical community, and that's what I like. I want to be in a bunch, with a bunch of people that like to play music and write songs and get their songs out to the world. And so if I can help them do that, I'm happy to do it. You're also listed on several of the albums as an engineer. I did that. Um, now, is that also just something you do? or? <laughs> well, I, I, I 
learned I'm not tech, I'm not a techie in any way, Shay. I'm a total analog man, and uh, so. Um, but I had a great teacher uh, in, in Nashville, uh, Jack Clement, cowboy, Jack Clement, who just died about two months ago. Great, great character and a great, great man. And he gave me all kinds of opportunities, and that's the way I was able to stay in Nashville. And then he eventually said I needed to learn how to run the board. And I said, oh, I don't know, I don't know, Jack, I'm not technically oriented. And he said, well, you don't have to be a mechanic to drive a car, do you? And he, he said, you have good ears, you can do it. He said, go do it. So I did it. And um, he called me up one day. Yeah, he said, what are you doing? He said, I said, I don't know, what am I doing? He says, uh, he says, come over here. I've got Vic Damone over here. I don't know if anybody knows who he was, but he was like with Tony Bennett and Frank Sinatra and those people singing in the 50s and 60s. He had a lot of big records. He was over at Jack's studio and he had some musicians there. He said, I want you to record them. Okay, I come over. So I got into the studio and I got everybody set up the way I thought they should be set up. I would ask some questions and once he told me I should learn how to do this, I asked a couple of the engineers that were there where the on-off switches were, stuff like that. And, uh, and Jack gave me a couple of pointers and, and keep it simple, keep it clean and uh, if it doesn't sound right, move the microphone, change the microphone and keep it simple. So I, Vic Damone didn't know I'd never recorded anybody in my life. And I got everybody all set up, and they all came in, ran a song down, and I pressed the red button, and it, they did it, and then I wanted to hear it back. Okay. And it played back. So I was an engineer. <laughs> There you go. I knew you were going to come up with something like that. All right, one more question. Okay. And this this will teach you to ask questions. Oh, that was great. I love it. This is about your book writing. Mm. Now, I know that you were involved with two books, Baby, Let Me Follow You Down, which was a co-authorship. And then you wrote one called Boss Man. Boss Men. Yep. Boss Bill Man. Monroe and Muddy Waters. Talk just a little bit about those. Well, um, I... I was out of work. Uh, I worked for George Ween. I worked with Jones for a couple of years, and um, George ran a little shy on money at the end of the summer, so I was out of work. Jones kept his job, but uh, I, I don't know. I didn't need the money. No. <laughs> anyway, so I was looking for work, or and I was, you know, when you're in these particular predicaments. Um, you get creative, at least I think that's a good idea to get creative because if you don't, you might starve. And so, I don't know, I just woke up one morning and I had this idea. I'd gotten to know Bill Monroe and Muddy Waters and uh, I woke up and I said, they are just alike. And the more I thought about it, the better I like it and I actually did this. I got out of bed and I wrote a little piece uh, that became the introduction to the book. And then I went back to bed. And then I read it again in the morning, and I said, yeah, this is pretty good. And I, um, in the course of working at Newport uh, for the Folk Festival, and uh, I'd gotten to know some various people, and a very good friend, Ralph Rensler, his cousin Richard, worked at a book company. So I called him up. I said, would you 
be interested in this idea I have. And he said, well, that sounds like an interesting idea, but I've just signed somebody to write a book about the blues, Peter Goralnik. And um, <laughs> so, but he referred me to another guy, Dial Press, and he took me to a publisher's lunch in New York, which consists of martinis <laughs> at lunch. And I had the paper with me and that I'd written, and I gave it to him. He looks at it, reads it. He says, okay, how much do you need? <laughs> and I, I said, well, uh, 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 I don't know. Uh, let's see. Well, it might take me about four months, $200 a week, uh, four, four grand. Okay. <laughs> Fine. So there he will go. You know, this couldn't happen today. We'd have a focus group, and we'd have a <laughs> few other odds and ends. So at any rate, um, then, uh, so that's how that book came about, and I've, uh, it's, was in print. It's been in print and out of print over the years, and I've just brought it back in print. You'll be happy to know. You can get it on Amazon. And um, I'm also happy to say that the Berkeley School of Music is going to do a two-day seminar in September 12th and 13th based on this book about Bill Monroe and Muddy Waters. And if you're curious as to why I would put these two people, as they say in Louisiana, side by each, uh, you can read the book and then read their words. I would encourage you. The best thing about this book isn't that I wrote it. It's about their words. And I was very fortunate to spend time with both of them. And they both talked about how they came to develop their music and how they w were as band leaders and how people came to them and how their music developed. And, uh, when you read their words aloud, it, it really gives you something that you can't get anywhere else. The other book I did with Eric, we appointed ourselves class historians um, at a, we had a, Eric had a party up at his place in Henniker, New Hampshire. We were, it was a full moon in August and we were, base, we were cooking a big beef in a pit and we had to baste that beef all night long and we were basting ourselves as we went along and we were pretty well basted by the end of the night but we came up with this another bright idea and that was the idea to do that and we sent out letters to various people involved and said do you think this is a good idea do you want to contribute and we got it going and we were lucky to find a publisher there. We did the whole thing. We interviewed everybody that we could find. And there again, I think the strength of that book is, is their words. This was the telling of this story in the, by the people that were there. And wasn't somebody dreaming up what we were about. It was just from our, all of us, we interviewed about 70 people. The two people that weren't included uh, well, Joan Baez and Bob Dylan, and Joan opted out for her own reasons, and Dylan wasn't really part of that Cambridge scene. He was part, we were friends, but I think it's a good book in that way because it's not just about Bob Dylan and Joan Baez, it's about <laughs> everybody in this group, and there was a lot of us, not everybody's a household name, but when you read it all together, you really get a feeling of that community, I think. Thank you very much. And we'll come back when, in, when we do the group. Okay. Well, Bob Jones' name is, is uh, pretty synonymous with the Newport Folk Festival, not only a, a major force behind them in the 60s, but uh, was the director of the new Newport Folk Festival that revived in 1985, 1985 and is still going 
uh, is still going strong. Uh, and I want to talk uh, about how you got into that kind of work. But first, a lot of people don't know that you were a performer. First, you had to put an album out on Vanguard? A very small sample album. And it's very good that it was a sampler. Because if I had to do a whole one, I'd be in deep trouble. Oh, it was, it was, what was the name of the album? New Folks and Phil was on. Oh. Lisa Kendred, I think, possibly. You're um, the other one that was on that. I yes. always, Oh, hi. Lisa Kendred. It was Lisa Kendred, Phil, yeah, yeah. Eric Anderson, Eric and you. Anderson, yeah. That's right. Yeah. So what were what were you uh, what were you like as a performer? <laughs> I know, I, well, I was not a very good guitar player, which a lot of people knew. But I was very much interested in, as somebody has already mentioned, some the ballad whole ballad. Mm -hmm. Uh, genre, and I really enjoyed uh, singing. I, I really remember relating to uh, old English ballads, but for some reason they had a very strong appeal to me, uh, maybe in the, because in the literary mode, but uh, as I was not a very good guitar player, the melody element was sometimes a little bit less than best. But Generally speaking, I would probably say that I enjoyed doing those, and I did find out uh, very early on that I was very uh, adept at handling people on stage, like at Hootenannies. I was, somehow or other, I could figure out how to, if I had six people who were going to be on, I could programming it within myself uh, for them. And I think that's probably what uh, carried me on into the folk festival world. Yeah, the, you were very involved as a performer and as an as an activist in the in the Cambridge folk scene, and then got involved with George Ween and went right to Newport, right? And how did, how did you get involved in the production end? Uh, in 1963, uh, 62 rather, I went to Newport and uh, they were looking for volunteers. And in those days in Newport, we had the, the artist came for a very low price, $50 a day, but we did take care of them in other ways. We put them up uh, in these various dorms that were in the, a women's, a girls' school in Newport. We paid them $50 a day, as I say. We put them up, we fed them, uh, and then they played. Uh, on the various uh, areas that we had denoted. One was the Newport Casino, which, which we used. The other was the ballpark in Newport, which was Freebody Park, which had become famous in 1960 because there was a big riot there for the Jazz Festival. I just um, want to be real clear, everybody gets it. Everybody got paid the same 50 bucks. Right. Theodore Bacall was starring on Broadway in Sound of Music. He came to Newport and got paid 50 bucks uh, contra dance troupe from New Hampshire, 50 bucks. Well, Theodore Bacall didn't sing anything from Sound of Music. No. So, that was, <laughs> I mean, so we were ahead of the game there. No, kind of no. But uh, so at that point, I was working with Joyce Ween, George's husband, and Toshi Seeger, because we were the people who were there to organize not the music, but the artists so that they can be properly transported back and forth and carry on. And, and we also uh, 
decided who would be staying in what dorm, what, et cetera, which turned out to be a very interesting uh, element of the festival in those days. There were uh, daytime workshops at the casino. Later, they became a very integral part of the recordings of Vanguard when they transferred to St. Michael's School, which was a school right on, if you've been to Newport, on Memorial Boulevard, uh, where we had a string workshop and a political blues, all kinds of things. Uh, and then in the evenings, there were the big concerts. A lot of people don't realize that in, the, in those particular concerts, in the larger evening concerts, maybe a group got to do three songs. Maybe Peter, Paul, and Mary did four songs, but basically it was a three-song, four-song element of whoever you had, whether they be Peter, Paul, and Mary, or Joan Byers, or Bob Gibson, whoever it was. That's what the deal was. And we parlayed all of the traditional artists into a mix with the artists who were the more popular artists, because basically the formula, which has not really changed, uh, that much is that the popular artists of the day were those who sold the tickets and bought their large audiences. And audiences in those days, we were talking about 10, 12, and then later when we moved to a field which we used uh, in Middletown, 20,000 people. So that meant that if you put on the Stanley Brothers, uh, which we did a couple of times, but they would play in front of 20,000 people. And I remember we, were, we did Ralph Stanley recently at another festival, which I was involved with, uh, in New Orleans. And he, he, George came up, George Wien came up, and I was on the stage, and Ralph came over and said, you, and he remembered us, you guys put me in front of 20,000 people. And George said, well, looks like you survived, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was very funny. But, so that was the formula that we used. Mm -hmm. uh, and then later in that period, uh, I published by 63 and 64, uh, I latched up with Ralph Rensler, who was on the board of directors and the talent director. And Ralph and I would do uh, two usual, two, usually two trips, one in the spring, one in the fall, of going around the United States and Canada to locate the traditional artists that we would present on the festival. Okay. I mean, now, just oh, I, I just want to interject for a minute for the audience that what folklorists call this field collecting, and and he and Ralph were going off looking for authentic traditional musicians, people who played within their own community, within their own ethnicity and stuff, and doing this, a lot of it in the Deep South during the height of the Civil Rights Movement. Right, and two these two white kids going through the poorest part of some Mississippi town and and knocking on doors and things. Tell us a little about what it was like field collecting in those days. Well, I mean, first of all, we started. I was very happy. We started in stopping at Deep Gap, where Ralph had introduced me to Doc Watson because he was the one who had sort of discovered him and, and presented him. And then we immediately went to Alabama. Oh, Alabama! Uh, we would have some inclination of what we might find because we'd spoken with various folklorists 
who were either connected with some universities or people like Alan Lomax or even Pete about what we should think about seeing or what we should think we could find, uh, et cetera. So that, that was our sort of moderate kind of approach. But basically, when you got into a small town, uh, and I guess literally, you would sometimes go to sometimes the churches. Sometimes we went to shape notes singing places who sang, would sing shape notes and ask. And then otherwise, we would just literally not knock on doors, but uh, go into a, uh, the other side of town, according to the sheriffs, uh, and find out what was happening in their clubs or little places where they had uh, music. Uh, and that was one of the ways we located a fellow named Joe Patterson, who was from Dothan, Alabama. Joe Patterson was a little bit uh, off track uh, in the sense that he lived behind his uh, members of his family. It wasn't, we were never quite sure. Joe Patterson played quills, where he would, and he had, which we had never seen before, seven quills, where he would blow over the quill, get the note, and if he didn't have the right note, he would hoop it, hoop, hoop. You know, and so he would play the tune, and then he would sing. He had a shaker, which was a piece of wood, a nail driven through some uh, tin can covers, and he bang it on his knee. And we got to see it because somebody had told us we should see this guy who plays for children. Okay. So, so we went there, and sure enough, Joe Patterson, these kids would come home from school, and Joe would be in the back banging this thing and singing these songs, and the kids would be all dancing around. That was fine. So we stayed overnight, and we met the, the family who sort of took care of him in front. I forgot what this I know it was John, and he told us, well, Joe's a little bit off, slightly off balance, but don't, don't worry. So, because we said we'd like to have Joe maybe come to this festival. Now, we had to go back home at some point and appear before the board of directors and say, here, we got this guy who does this. But we, so we stayed overnight in this motel, which is maybe, maybe a mile and a half from the center of Dothan, Alabama. We got up the next morning and we drove into town and we drove a little bit further in one of those normal southern towns. It's a big, there's two or three rows going into it. There's a big sort of circle in the middle. And then there's a large statue of, who would you like to think, see on that statue? Robert E. Lee, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we drove in and we were driving out the other side of town and Long came the police. Uh, we get out of the car. This has happened to us a couple of times. What are you do? What are you guys doing here? Where are the Martin Luther King tapes? Where is this? Well, let's see. Unload that car. Where are your guns? Almost. Ralph and I very calmly put everything aside, and it was one of the unique situations and. I've never mentioned this to Jim, but Jim will get a big kick of it. Ralph, at that time, was managing Bill Monroe. Bill Monroe. Mm. Ralph had a box of Bill Monroe pictures in the back of his car. 
and not the sheriff, but the person with the sheriff pulled this out and he says, what are you doing with these pictures of Bill Monroe? <laughs> <laughs> and he says, I'm his manager. <laughs> what? You're his manager? How did he allow you to be his manager? <laughs> you know, associating with black people. So, so finally Ralph pulled out some literature which had his name and Bill Monroe on it. And the guys, okay, get in the car, pack everything up, <laughs> drive out of town, you're later, you're gone. So that was a bit like what it was like. We had the same situation when we were in Texas with Reverend Doc Reese. Doc Reese was a, a, a preacher who Alan Lomax recorded many, many years ago. And we had stopped to see Doc Reese because he, does, he was from, from prison. Uh, and we stopped, and he was about to move from where he was, about maybe 200 miles north of Houston. He was going to a suburb outside of Houston. And we helped him a little bit with his moving. We asked him whether he could, whether he'd be interested in coming. We were trying to get four or five other prisoners to come up to, to Newport, too, which, which we did eventually. But, uh, and we drove off. And, but he, he told us where he was going to be. Meanwhile, we stopped at the penitentiary in, in Huntsville, I think it was, I've forgotten what it was, and made arrangements for us to go back and check out these, some prisoners along with another folklorist named Mac McCormick who was from the area. We drive down, we're in Houston, we go to, into Houston into uh, the infamous Fifth Ward where there were some other blues players that we knew about. And then we drove the next day, we stayed there one night, we drove the next day to where Doc was, had moved to. When we get there, we drive in, we say hello to his wife, and so forth. Next thing you know, there's a car pulls in. It's the, it's the police. And they say, we know who you are. You met Doc Reese in this town, wherever he was, and they had, literally, the police had told these guys who we were, our license plates, all this business. So we drove in, uh, and we uh, had a conversations with Doc and his wife and his younger children, and then we drove out and they, he followed us around, and Doc had told us, you might want to stop up the road, so you go to your left or right, whatever it was, and we go in and drive, and there's a lawyer, lawyer, a black lawyer there, and he is very interested in music groups, so we said, okay, so we thought we'd dr drive in there. We drove in there, and the police car drove in, but they didn't drive all the way in, and we stopped, and because now we knew, we knew kind of this stuff would happen. Uh, we drove in and we went in and spoke to the fellow. He was very nice. His wife, they gave us a little snack and then we started out. And, and he said, don't worry about these guys. They will, not, they will not touch you. They will not do anything because I have been very active in, uh, with civil rights activities. They won't do anything, but they may follow you, they may do something, but they know that you know who I am, and so So, again, we drove out, and this time they did the very same thing. They followed us for a while, and they stopped us, and then we got out and uh, got out of the car, and we told the man that uh, where we were going, we're saying, we have an appointment with the, I guess, I don't know what the exact title was. We have an appointment at the penitentiary. 
<laughs> oh, but, uh, says, yes, we have an appointment with the penitentiary, and we've to told him, because we called him from the house, which was totally alive, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, we told him, we said, we're leaving now, there's a police car in the neighborhood, and we just wanted to know we should arrive at X hour, or whatever it was. So uh, there was a little bit of discussion. There, was another, there were two of them, as usual, in the South. Uh, and they said, okay, go off. So we drove off a little bit, and then the next thing you knew, there was a, uh, a car, maybe about, we went drove about 20 miles. The police guys still followed us. The next thing is a police car coming down the other way. It's the police from the penitentiary <laughs> coming down to make sure that we would get to the penitentiary. <laughs> so after that episode, which was the same period, we had to call, uh, we, we, we mentioned this to our lawyer, Elliot Hoffman, who was the lawyer for the uh, Newport Folk Festival, and he said, okay, every night you have to call me and leave a message and say where you are, where you're staying, what's going on. So I remember Ralph saying, we're not worried, we're going to see Jimmy Driftwood tomorrow. <laughs> 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 Which we did, but it, it was a it was an interesting thing. But I I will say that it was a uh, it was it, it was an amazing thing to see these people and to have mm -hmm. contact with these people and to know that eventually. Hopefully, they would get to Newport where they would have an experience which they would probably never, ever be able to equal. And in those days, what we did was when the folk festival uh, played, and would, whenever we got a review of, in the paper about anybody who was like uh, a, a sort of person that you wouldn't think about, the Cajun people was the same way, these guys, we would clip out the, the paper, we would then send it to the local paper of that area so that they saw that these people were, mm. in fact, who they were and what they were and what they meant to the community. Yeah, I want to really focus on that because it's, it's such an important part of the 60s that gets lost. You're, you're talking about you know, not the advantages of not having Bob Dylan and Joan Baez in the book because people would see the other stuff that's happening that gets so lost in the star stories and everything. But here's this, the most successful folk festival. They're taking all their profits from getting Bob Dylan and Peter, Paul, and Mary and Theodore Bickell there, and they're pouring it into going down into rural areas to, to find people who play music just on their front porch, just for their neighbors, and to bring them in front of 20,000 people at the Newport Folk Festival um, to show people. And, and I just want to ask, and I bet everybody could kind of pitch in on this, and my last question to you, Bob. Why did you think it was so important to go, when you had all of these big stars clamoring to play, to go all the way down to Alabama to find a quill player you know, in his home and, and bring him up to play in front of 20,000 people. Why did you want to make sure those people were in the mix? Well, let's go backwards a second. Let's go back to the people who were starting to play at the, the Club 47 in the early days, or there were a number of coffee houses, Yana, Golden Vanity. Uh, many of us, our initial sort of introduction to the music was not only the coffee houses, but we were all very much aware of the American uh, folk music series done by, I've forgotten. Harry, Harry, Harry. Smith. Harry Smith. And I can remember uh, Eric uh, 
Vaughn Schmidt, Eric, was, was at that point my brother-in-law, but uh, not quite, but then. Uh, and we were, all, they were all fascinated by these things. I mean, we couldn't believe there was this music uh, that was happening, and, and it was, it was quote unquote our music. It was yeah. Let me just interject real quickly. If you're not familiar with the Harry Smith anthology, it's it's a collection mostly of old 78s yeah. of of different forms of American roots musicians, a little Cajun, a lot of blues, and very vintage, like from the 19 teens and 20s country music. And it was just a revelation to guys like you when you found it. And everybody should have a copy. Yeah. And I remember specifically there was a blues workshop, and it was either 63 or 64 when uh, lots of other uh, young people who were out looking for older blues musicians who they'd heard on older blues records. Uh, and at this uh, workshop was uh, Skip James. And I remember looking out in the audience, I was working with Ralph running this uh, workshop. And now I can see the guys from Blues Project, there were all these kids, and we were all kids at that point. And, and none of us had, no one had ever heard Skip James in person. He just arrived with, I've forgotten who brought him, it was a Dick? No, I don't think it was Water. Dick, what it was. And Skip James went on stage and he, Skip James always used to play these weird diminished chords a little bit when he first started. And out came this voice, which was in an unbelievable falsetto. And I remember saying, oh my God, this is unbelievable. I've never... I've never heard this. this. Is this is like, and this is something we had heard in record and so forth. But we never ever thought we would ever hear again live, and that happened with a lot of people like that. Yeah. Uh, Sun House, Mississippi John Heard, obviously another one. Uh, there was another one which we never heard. I, it's a very funny story. Ralph and I were. I've forgotten. We were with uh, uh, Clint, how Clint, Clint and Howard. and Fred. Fred Price. Fred, Fred Price. And Fred Price told us, well, there is a fiddle player. He's in the next town over. And supposedly, he's told us he's the world's greatest fiddle player. <laughs> I said, and Ralph, Ralph was, oh, as we go. So we drive over to the next town. We found the guy. said, yes, he's out working on the highway. He's a road worker. So we went out, and uh, we stopped the car and we found him and he said, you know, we asked him, where is so-and-so? I can't remember his name, it was John something or other. And he says, oh, he's over there. He's just digging this ditch. In. So <laughs> Ralph comes over and said, Fred Price told me you were the world's greatest fiddle player. Yes, I am the world's greatest fiddle player, but I have found religion, so you will never hear me playing the greatest fiddle <laughs> Oh, devastating day at the fair. <laughs> <laughs> Ralph and I used to laugh our heads off at that. Uh, now, the, but the other, another thing which, which, is, uh, which a lot of people don't understand as far as, I mean, that was the old folk festival, but during, the folk festival stopped basically in 1969. There was a festival planned in 70, which did not take place. And then we had another festival, which was scheduled for 71. There was a riot at the Jazz Festival in 71, so that festival was canceled by the city. So the last festival of the earlier period was 1969. At that point, I was working for George full-time, and I was, for the next <laughs> many years, I was not involved with folk music except peripherally. I helped 
organize and produce the Kentucky Fried Chicken Bluegrass Festival, which I learned a lot about bluegrass, which I'd never known. Uh, but at that point, I was doing jazz festivals and traveling with jazz musicians and singers. When I started to add it up recently, I figured out I was on the road for almost two and a half years, never in the US, always in Europe or Asia with jazz musicians, eight months alone with Duke Ellington at various times. Uh, and then when we came back with the Jazz Festival in 1981 to Newport, the festival did okay, uh, and the state, decided that they would like us to do some other event. So George called me up and I was in Cincinnati, Ohio. I remember because I just finished the Kentucky Fried Chicken Bluegrass Festival and he said, called me and says, can you put a folk festival together? Sure, I said, I can do that. <laughs> so I literally, I did it from Cincinnati, Ohio. I organized the festival in 1985 and we produced the festival. It was a mix of old and new primarily old. I think the new people that year were uh, David Mallett was on it. Uh, Dave, was it Dave Mallett on yeah. it? Yeah, Dave Mallett. Was Morrissey that year? Bill, Bill Morrissey. Yeah. Uh, who's but let's clarify, by old he means the young pups from the 60s yeah. festival. He doesn't mean old like Mance Lipscomb and Son no, no. <laughs> And the, the, who's the dulcimer player? Who? Uh, from New York. Jeannie Ritchie. No, Jean no, no, no. Young kid. David Maskell. David Maskell. Yeah. And those were the new people. That mm -hmm. And the old people are Joan Baez. Well, the old people were Don, Joan, Not Dave, Joan, but, yeah. you know, Dave Van Ronk, and these people. Uh, and it did very well, so suddenly I became, like Jim, a producer. I, <laughs> I had to produce the, the festivals for a number of years, which we did. Uh, we, were, had, we had various sponsors, which were absolutely Im, imperative that, that we have sponsors because the festival was very expensive to put on in Newport. Uh, You're not getting people for 50 bucks. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we had some wonderful sponsors, Ben and Jerry's, for example, which was a great sponsor. But we, we carried on somewhat in, in, in the same mode. The next, the following year in 1986, I did a festival uh, which was almost all of the people from the older years. It did terrible. <laughs> it just did terrible. And I said to myself, "That's it. We're not. We're, we're going to go in. A, we're going to go in a new direction." At that point, we also did something which was uh, we weren't quite sure exactly how we should do this. We were profit or non-profit. So we had a meeting with the old with a, n a number of the people from the board of directors who were still from the old period. Who still, we had a meeting, it was in George's house in, on, on 74th Street, and we had it in the kitchen, we had a whole bunch of different people. And uh, there was, uh, George said, look, we, the Newport Festival is an, certainly a, a name worth, we need to keep doing something, but we need to make sure that we're doing it and we want I don't think we said we want your blessing, but we want to know whether or not you, as a group, or others who may not want to join in doing the whole foundation and put it all back together. Uh, there were some people who were 
very interested in it. And it's a very political period at that time. Uh, at the end of the evening, uh, I went upstairs uh, in the, and I was saying uh, goodbye to Pete and Toshi. Now, if you know Pete and Toshi, if you know, know them at all, you can have a fairly reasonable conversation with Toshi. You could have. <laughs> But with Pete, you had this conversation which was called Pete's Week. I'm not quite sure what it was, but you never knew quite where you were. And I remember Toshi spoke to me. She said, Bob, you do the festival. You have it in your mind. You know what's, you know what's needed to be, to, done, to be done. And I said, even in those days, I said, you know, and this is a burden that I always felt, in even all those years, the burden that I knew and was a part of the part of the, of a very important part of the early festivals, and now I had to produce a newer festival, the burden of knowing how that was done and what happened was very often heavy on my mind until finally I basically came to somewhat the conclusion that the tradition of the festival is not necessarily involved with the people who are involved in the festival. The tradition of the festival is to present valuable, good music, period. And so that was what we basically, that's basically what we've done in the past. Uh, I had lots of help doing it with my some of my family. And then in, uh, about nine years ago, I became ill with something called Guillaume-Barré syndrome, uh, and I was pretty much incapacitated for a year, so my daughter, Nalini, took over. Uh, and then we came back, uh, although I couldn't do that much. George uh, Wien, who was the owner of, owner of the festival at that time, sold his company to a group of people who were ne'er-do-wells, to say the least, they went to about $15 million in two years. Uh, and we got the company back, uh, and we got the Newport Folk Festival back, the name. Uh, and I said to George, we need somebody else. And we had a person who was very much interested in the festival, a fellow named Jay Sweet, who has become the producer of the festival. Jay and I had a long almost day conversation uh, about two years ago. Jay is very much on top of the whole tweet, you know, the, the whole social network. He's a whiz at, knows what's going on, and is, does things very different than sometimes I would have done. But he, again, understands that the value of the festival is in the value of the music. And I think another thing that, that is very elemental to the those festivals in the 80s, the 60s, and the modern ones, is that it's very much about transferring this tradition from the past through the present to the future. And I think you see that at every festival. I asked Jay Sweet, I was writing something about the Newport Folk Festival for the Folk Alliance, and asked Jay what his favorite memory of the very modern f festivals was. And he said, kind of similar to getting you getting the blessing from Pete, he said, 92-year-old Pete Seeger 
climbing a sound tower so he can get away from his fans and really listen to the Decemberists. <laughs> and there's the, there's the living tradition. I, I, what I'd like to do, and I, I just want to pick up on that theme about bringing these old people in, because it's so such from another time and so important to what the folk revival was and asked Betsy and Jim to weigh in on it because it was a very important part of Club 47. What was it that these old, many of them non-professional musicians, social musicians, community musicians, what was it that they brought to the scene that was so important that you, were, that you wanted to work so hard to bring up musicians that you knew only one thing for sure about, they were not going to make you any money? It's the heart of the country. Well, the yeah. music was the heart of the country. And we didn't know that until these things happened. And it, it didn't take a PhD or even a graduate degree or an undergraduate degree to be moved by the stories and the songs and that you, with, with any imagination, could apply them to your own everyday lives. And before that, there had been the Everly Brothers and and a lot of pop music, southern pop music, but it didn't speak to us. I mean, that made us dance. Um, but these stories that came bu bubbling up under the, the framework of America in a way that we had no knowledge that it was there. So every day we were always surprised, and we're still always surprised. But I will tell you something different. It's <laughs> definitely changed. In order to find new people, I've discovered that you can go to Berkeley School of Music. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to go to the country. You can go to Harvard, yeah. Harvard, home of Tom Morello, David Wax, mm -hmm. Colin, David, Colin uh, from the Decembers. I said, they're all over the place. You know, and, and thank goodness they're all over the place. Uh, Jim, you have something? Gillian Welsh in the, from is, was it Berkeley? From where? Berkeley. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, I, I guess uh, for me it was just a, 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 a. There was a reality there that wasn't in our lives in Dedham or Cape Brookline or wherever we were growing up. There was a re reality which we were able to bring to us. I mean, it came to us in the form of all these people, many of whom came into our homes and, and became our friends, Hobart Smith and his wife, I mean, and, and uh, it, it was just a, a time that we could never repeat. We knew that we had that feeling and they, all these old records we'd heard, then suddenly there was flesh and blood in front of you and as he describes Skip James, I mean, that was just absolutely chilling to hear yeah. these people in person. and. Uh, so that was just something we we were very very fortunate to get, and then we absorbed that music in a different way than listening to records. Mm -hmm. We it came into us in a new way, and I think that enabled us the, the those of us who play. And just in the last week or so, I've seen Taj Mahal, I've seen Bill Keith, I've seen Eric Weisberg, I've, I, all so many. All of us from this group, Tom Rush, Jeff Moldar, we're all still playing. We're all now 70 years old. And Some of I, us are a little older. And that older. gives us that, but that music really went mm. into us at that time and has stayed with us. But it hasn't just stayed static. 
We've, we all added to it in our own ways. You know, Bill and I, we were playing, we were playing Caravan. We were playing uh, Night in Tunisia. We were playing different f music with this background in bluegrass and, and hillbilly music. Or Taj Mahal the other night was going through a whole repertoire of blues from Mississippi John Hurt to Buddy Guy, all these people, one after the other, but doing it as Taj Mahal and doing it brilliantly. And uh, so I think that was the great uh, blessing of, of this in our own lives. And then we are able, it seems now, to bring the music to people. Bill and I have traveled, Keith and I travel a lot in Europe and Japan. And there are people all over there who learn their music from us. <laughs> and so it just, uh, I'm much more aware of that now as being a carrier of the music. And the older people are gone, we're gonna be gone, but we are passing it on in some form or another that is legitimate. It's not all, it's not the same. We're not preserving this stuff in amber. Uh, you know, it has to develop, it has to change. And you want it to change in a legitimate, honest way. There's still, there you want to preserve the cultural memory of the fact that this music originally came up from the lives of real people, yeah. not through a show business filter. And I think, what your generation carried on in the tradition more than anything is that idea of being real. Let's keep this music about real people and real life and that obviously changes as the life around them changes, but isn't that what, I mean, what you got from those source people that you Well, I think the, the, the thing that I am most proud about as far as the uh, Newport Folk Festival, even to this day, is the work that we did with the Cajun contingent in yeah. Louisiana. Uh, we, Ralph and I went there and we located these Cajuns who we, who we brought up to Newport and among the fiddle player who was to play with them was unable to get there so the fiddle player who came up was Dewey Balfour who has become mm -hmm. obviously a legend and Dewey Balfour told us uh, that when he went back home, he, for the first time, felt in his heart that the music that he was playing and would continue to play finally had absolute, solid, true meaning for himself and his culture. Uh, and one of the nice things that happened to me was having made friends with Dewey when he came up north was when I went to New Orleans and he invited me to his home and his wife was cooking in the kitchen and fiddles were everywhere and after dinner he said, you want to go dancing? And I said, where? Because we were 50 miles out of New Orleans. And he said, we're going to go over to the Ardoins <laughs> Quonset hut. We drove down a very dirt road and went on forever. We came, and it was night, and we came to this concert hut, and there were five of us who were white. And we got out of the, the van, and the Ardoins came out to the place and um, welcomed us in. And we learned to two-step that night with all black Cajun musicians and with Dewey's white Cajun musicians. It was 
I couldn't have made it up. Well, I could have. But. <laughs> and it's not the story they tell yeah. us about yeah. what it's like down there. Yeah, no. it was a magical night. Now, you all each have over 50 years of folk memories. What memories are the most vivid for you now? And what, if I said to you, think of some, some, something that really struck you, what, what would come to mind? Well, that was one of my favorites. Well, that obvious, yeah. that doesn't make me think of that question. Well, I, I told a story yesterday in another panel, but I could tell it again. Um, uh, when Bill Keith was, Bill Keith went to work for Bill Monroe and his Bluegrass Boys when Ralph was managing them, and so I went down actually with Jones and me and, and Jeff, Jeff Moldar, yeah. were, they were headed to keep blind Lemon Jefferson's grave clean. And, we did, we and, did. And, and uh, <laughs> I got off the car in Nashville and stayed there for a few weeks with Ralph and Bill and met Bill Monroe and had quite a time. And at uh, any rate, uh, at some point during that, now we had met, Ralph Rensler really discovered Doc Watson. I mean, he was collecting Clarence Ashley and some other musicians in that area, and Doc was kind of along for the ride as a guitar player. And he was blind, and a lot of people, they all called him boy. That blind boy. He was 35 years old. And he'd actually been to the Raleigh School of the Blind. He was the only one among them who'd actually been educated. Hmm. And, wow. But that was the mentality in the country. Uh, they looked at him as a handicapped person. And as soon as Ralph heard him, of course, he, he just he couldn't believe it. So Ralph brought Doc up to Cambridge. And uh, he, he, at one point, he, he stayed with me and Bill Keith. And then he moved over to Nancy Sweezy's house. And... Um, at any rate, we became, he said, any time you're, you know, come to see me in Boone. So we were over in Nashville, and, and um, we decided to go over to see him, me and Bill, and we drove over, and it was just fantastic. We got welcomed into his home. He had his, his was Willard his cousin? or we, No, his, his brother. Brother, yeah. Willard Watson, and his wife made or, quilts, or and I mean, quite a, we had quite a night there, and then Doc was going over the next day to play in Asheville, North Carolina, and Bill and I had been there for a couple of times to play on Bascom Lamar Lunsford's Folk Festival <laughs> concert down there, and um, uh, so we said, well, we'll come over with you to Asheville. We'd like to do that, so we got over to Asheville, and Pete Seeger was going to be sharing the concert with Doc, and the newspaper in Asheville had an article, the American Legion was up in arms about Bill, about Pete Seeger, the communist, coming and playing in the municipal auditorium. And, uh, and I don't remember, there might have even been some picketing going on, but it was obviously he wasn't being welcomed by the, you know, some people in town. At any rate, the, the hall, it was in the municipal auditorium, and it was pretty full, and Doc went out and did his set, and then Pete, came out and uh, he just, and it was a cool reception. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't hostile, but it was not overwhelmingly receptive. So he just started out playing a couple of banjo tunes. And then he did a couple of, maybe a couple of lead belly songs, something that people would know. And, and then he just eased into it, a Woody Guthrie song, whatever. And he just gradually 
pulled these people into him. He wasn't talking to talking at them or anything. He just brought them in with his music. And by the end, he said, well, I've just heard this wonderful song over in Tennessee, East Tennessee, at this place, the Highlander Center. Singer there, Guy, Guy Carawan, taught it to me. And I'd like to teach it to you. And it was, we shall overcome. <laughs> and he had everyone in that place, on their feet, holding hands. I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen a person take an audience to take them with him and bring him to a place that a lot of them probably never dreamed they'd ever be in. And it was just an amazing, amazing uh, performance. And I've never, ever forgot it. Pete told me, brother, during the blacklist, the time when he was actually had been convicted of contempt of Congress, that the only way he got publicity for his shows, and the reason they had good crowds out, is because of the American Legion and the John Birch Society. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, if I was just a folk singer, I might have gotten some little paragraph yeah, way back right. in the want yeah, ads yeah. or something, but right. it was a news story because they were picketing, so right. I got on the front page. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have a very short story. It's not about Newport, but it's Newport related. Ralph Winsler lived on West 4th, I think it was, not West 4th Street? Yeah. Yes. yeah. And it was like six floors up it or was five. A, no, it was Four. eight, eight oh, floors. It was way, no, the, it was no. way the hell oh up in here. Oh my God, it was anyway, so I was staying there and the uh, Ralph had gone out to pick up Doc Watson. Doc was coming and Doc was going to play uh, somewhere. I don't know where it was. So he came back and I was there. Uh, Ralph was going uh, that evening I was going to take Doc out to dinner. Ralph said, you can take him up to whatever his own restaurant up the street. So I said, fine. And Ralph was going to one of those uh, crazy record collector meetings <laughs> where they, you know, the people who collect old 78s and stuff, they sometimes never tell you who the artist they say. It's, no, I have RCA 6318. So that's how they deal with it. So he was going to the meeting. So I go out with Doc, we come back, and we're in the, we get upstairs, and, we're in the, and some of you will remember, this was the day or evening when all the lights went out. Ah. So I said to uh, I said to Doc, Doc, I think our lights have gone out. You know? yeah. So, <laughs> so he, I said, oh, and wait, wait a minute. And I said, well, they're not coming on. Bob, can I help you around? <laughs> <laughs> that was it. That was a wonderful, oh, nice. Very nice. Well, we've all lived a life that we love. And you can't get better than that. So thank you, music, music lovers, music makers everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, and Jim, I think a, per a perfect thing, maybe get some questions. And, but Jim, because I think it applies to all three of you so well, tell people what the name of your memoir is going to be. In it for the long run. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit longer than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> I had everything all figured out. You know, I'd be dead by now and I could spend all the money. But I spent all the money, but I'm not dead. <laughs> Well, well, my daughters have me working on um, a book. Oh, said, yeah. yes, uh, because they, um, they, my, my Radika was another one of my daughters said, 
Uh, Dad, you were the you were a person who was strangely enough in both fields of music that were not very popular. <laughs> <laughs> Jazz and folk. Yeah. Uh, and you have these marvelous adventures with all kinds of different people. Uh, and you were also involved in, in the festivals, and particularly the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, which I've been in. We, we started that festival. In fact, many of us felt that when, we, when the Folk Festival closed in 1969, when we went to New Orleans, as far as we were concerned, George, Joyce, and myself, we always felt it was, it was a combination of the Jazz Festival and the Folk yeah. Festival, which it was. So there we am. I'm working on these things. I'm doing something from both sides now. That's the song oh, says. Oh, oh. I didn't Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> but they may have been unpopular music, Bob, but you, you always had very long ballads to fall back on. That's Whoa. true, actually. <laughs> once, I, <laughs> once I was, I, Duke Ellington liked it. Duke Ellington had a weird schedule. When he would go on the road, he never, he played forever, all the time. And what did we do in Europe? We'd play in, let's say, Stuttgart. He would, he would play, we'd play the concerts and so forth, and then generally speaking, if the piano was good, a good piano, he'd hang around and play the piano, and the band would go off on the bus and what have you. And then if, we were, if it was drivable in Europe, I would drive, we would rent a car, and I would drive from that, finish, when he finished that, drive to the next city. And Harry Carney would sometimes sit with, sit with in the back, and Duke and Harry and myself would go through all these crazy conversations. Uh, and there were some wild conversations, let oh. me tell you. But... Uh, You're not going to tell. No, no, Radhika said... No, Radhika, <laughs> this is what, so I said, I'm telling Radhika, so I mentioned a couple of these. She said, Dad, I, I don't want to say it, but there may be some people left from Duke Ellington's orchestra, and you can't write those stories. <laughs> So, but it was it was amazing to be with him. I have always felt, in an odd way, that Dylan is the Duke Ellington of his day. He never stops playing. He always wants to hear his own music. He just keeps going. He's like the Ever Ready Battery. I mean, just keep they just keep going and so forth. And and Duke was like that. Monk was another one who was a little different, but. It was the same way. Does my first introduction to, to folk music on disc, by the way, was when my sister Helen came back from the University of Iowa and brought back a Burl Ives album called The Coronation Concert, I think it was. And there was a song on there, How Now, Shepherd, What Means That? It's a Shakespearean poem, and I... I, I thought, oh man, that, this is really interesting. That, along with the Thelonious Monk album, yeah. called Brilliant Corners. <laughs> yeah, back there. I'm Alison Shapira. I'm a recovering opera singer inspired by Joan Baez and Judy Collins. And my question is what advice do you have for newer generations of folk singers? I asked Rosalie Sorrells that question once, and she said, Go back, it's a trap. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think that's what you're looking for. Yet. Betsy, I think you should answer this 
Well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> For me, the incredibleness of how the music has come back around again in different formats, in all kinds of quirky, wonderful, inventive, edgy, um, lonesome. The, the real emotions have come back, and I think in, in a lot of ways it's due to the Americana run. And I would say with all my heart to anyone who wants to be in this business, don't quit your day job, but also keep it real. Be as close to your heart as you can get and look for the other door, not the same door everyone's come through, but look for that other door that belongs to you. Wanda, you had your hand up? Well, first of all, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the Hillbilly Ranch because my father and mother had their first date there. Oh, my God. <laughs> Whoa. But I wanted to ask Bob, do you remember uh, the moon landing? Because in 1969, 1969. Yeah. Yes. had the televisions yes. at the Newport Folk Festival for us to watch the moon landing. And do you remember doing that? Yes. That was yeah. very um, forward thinking in terms of technology. And I just wanted to validate that I wasn't dreaming that. Wait a minute, I'm going to mark that down for my book. <laughs> <laughs> Forward thinking in 69. I have a, I have a tape of, of myself announcing that. Um, a few yeah. years ago, uh, CBS did, uh, I think it was Charles Corral's show or something, they did a, a anniversary of the moon landing or something. So they had a bunch of clips. And a friend of mine in New York, Charlie Rothschild, called me up. He said, I saw you on TV yesterday. I said, what was I doing? He said, you were announcing the landing on the moon at the Newboard Folk Festival. And uh, so uh, uh, he's, he got me a copy of it. I've got it somewhere. And uh, and so I come out and I say, you might be interested. We had a little black and white TV backstage. And we were watching it. And um, I think it was Fairport Convention that just got off or something. and. Uh, any rate, uh, Charles Corral had it wrong. He had it at the Jazz Festival, but you know, don't believe everything you see on TV. Okay. I don't remember no, no, was, any uh, that we had that? any actual screens it showing that, it to the audience. It was a TV. Some of us had TV. And uh, any rate, so I don't know. So you might, I said you might be interested to know, but they just landed on the moon, and the basic audience was reaction. Well, let's get on with the music. <laughs> you know, you know, it was so different for us in the '60s and so forth. Uh, I mean. Many people who were in this music with the desire to go on into some kind of commercial effort with their music had to do it in a very different way. I mean, you would hope you would get a record contract for something. Nowadays, it's our, the, you know, no one can, no one ever is concerned about that anymore. You would hope you would have a now you can do a CD and so forth. Now you don't even need to do a CD. You can do a couple of tunes and get them on Spotify. There's a whole different series of things that you can do to push the commercial element of what you have in mind to do. But the other part is what Betsy's referring to, and that's what gets you on to the other things. The other, the commercial things will follow if you get the other part right. Mm -hmm. And and look, uh, as a person, I don't do them anymore, but I can tell you that in the 80s and so forth, if you knew 
all of this material we got delivered to our office about this and that and so forth. I, uh, I, I can't tell you that it's it's very difficult for people to get booked on a festival. It's not an easy task, but if you are confident with what you're doing and you're able to keep going and do it, you might just make it. There's no guarantee here at all. And remember that change is the big thing. You know, some people believe that the process, even in philosophy, the process is what's real. What's real. It's the process. It's not the element. It's the very thing of process that is the reality. And the process, in this case, is to move along with what's going on as far as your world and our world. Well, if oh, there so are no further questions, uh, does any, uh, would you each like to make one final statement just about? I, I was out of town that night. I can't prove a thing. I can't. <laughs> okay, Betsy? I was with Jim. <laughs> I, have a question. I have a question. Yeah. How many of you have been to the Duport Folk Festival in the early years? How many of you have been to the Folk Festival in recent years? Oh, even ah, we're making Somebody's progress. got money. There you go. <laughs> thank you. It's yeah. too expensive. <laughs> well, I would like to thank this panel. I love what they did. Jim Rooney. Give me a hand. Thank you. Betsy Siggins. Bob Jones, my co-MC here, Scott Allerick. And the wisdom behind Wisdom of the Elders, Sonny Oaks. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. You have been listening to a Wisdom of the Elders panel session that was recorded at the 19th Annual Northeast Regional Folk Alliance Conference held at the Hudson Valley Resort in Carhonkson, New York on November 9th, 2013. The panelists were Betsy Siggins, Jim Rooney, and Bob Jones. Bob Jones passed away this past August. And the panel was hosted by series creator Sonny Oaks, along with Scott Allerick, who has also since passed away. Wisdom of the Elders, the podcast, is produced by Sunny Oaks, along with the Northeast Regional Folk Alliance Conference and Folk Music Notebook. We thank you for listening, and please join us again next month for another edition of Wisdom of the Elders, the podcast.